0: and not a shoveler this might not be the sermon for you you know what i mean by a raker you like to you like to rake things along the surface of your life and move things around on the surface and unfortunately this passage just won't allow us to do that this passage is is calling us to take a shovel and to dig down into the text and dig down into our lives because it's going to require a shovel to deal with this text this text is mysterious, this text is controversial, this text is loaded with all kinds of stuff that we're going to have to look at. So I'm going to ask you to do something a little different. I'm actually going to ask all of us to actually think hard this morning. Now I think we do that every Sunday, but now I'm actually going to say it because we have to think hard about this text. Uh, This text is loaded with life, it's loaded with health, it's loaded with grace, And for many of us, you might want to be even saying now, Oh God, please speak to me. Um, There might be things in your life that have been there a long time, and this might be a time that you could ask the Lord to give you some space and understanding what exactly is going on with you and how God works in our life. Uh, So, this is a real, well, I don't know, I've said enough by way of intro. You are probably wanting to head out the door from that nice introduction to Romans 7. Um, Sue grew up in the church. She never knew a day that she didn't know and trust Jesus. Uh, Her testimony always seemed, well, boring. (laughs) She didn't have one of those drug dealer to youth minister conversions like many of us might have. Um, Many times she has wondered throughout her Christian life, am I missing something? Um... Her Christian life has been pretty boring too, if you were to ask her. She would say that she doesn't struggle with bad sins. And the stuff that she does struggle with, all she needs is a little more willpower, a little more uh, self-discipline, a little more Bible study, and a little more prayer. And it's handled, it's taken care of. Which leads us to today, and leads us to her sense of lostness that she's feeling right now. Because her self-discipline, her willpower, her Bible study and prayer are no longer working. They're no longer restraining her anger. They're no longer suppressing her rising romantic desires and fantasies. They're no longer helping with her stress and her anxiety in life that seems to be one situation, one minute from boiling over and swallowing her up. Sue wonders what's wrong with me? What's happening to me? Has God withdrawn his favor from me? Has he distanced himself from me? What am I missing? She desperately cries. Sam, you'll notice a pattern here. Sam has always felt there must be something more to the Christian life. In college, he was a dynamic ministry leader in the largest ministry on campus. So no one was surprised by his call to ministry. And yet, deep inside, Sam always felt, in ministry, even being used greatly by God, that there must be something more to the Christian life. Now, we fast forward 10 years, and he's in pastoral ministry. And someone comes up to him and says, hey, man, you've got to read this. So he reads it. It changes his life. What happened to Sam? The book talked persuasively about what's missing in the Christian life the book pointed out and addressed there is something more to the Christian life. What is it? The book talked about how you you get out of Romans 7 and into Romans 8. How the the complexities and the frustrations and the missing realities of Romans 7 are actually found in Romans 8 and you need to get out of it and over here. So Sam found the secret to something more in the Christian life. Sam found the secret to what's missing in the Christian life. Samantha has always felt the weight of her sin. Those closest to her would say, quote, things like this. Samantha is unhealthily introspective. She's always walking around continually checking her spiritual pulse. How's she doing? How's it beating? Is it weak? Is it strong? Uh Uh-oh. I can't find it. So when Samantha did something far worse than than anything she's ever done and anything she's ever dreamed of doing, it was terrifyingly traumatic. She didn't know what to do. She had no categories for what she just did. She had no categories for the level of evil that she sees in her life. What in the world does Samantha do? Last one. Stuart. Stuart believes everyone's basically good. So if someone really does something really bad, it must be because someone has done something really bad to them in their life. And this is Stuart's problem because he just did something really, really bad and no one has ever done anything really bad to him. He just did it. His whole view of humanity has been crushed. His whole view of himself is crushed. What does Stuart do now? Are you sure you're ready for Romans 7? Please stand for the hearing of God's word.
1: Uh, Romans 7, 13 uh, through 25, and it's on uh, page 943 of the Bible that's in front of your seat. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh
0: Oh, Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the contours of this passage. We thank you for the complexities of this passage. We thank you for the wonderful comfort of this passage. And so I ask, we ask that you would shine on the page. Would you teach us? Would you illuminate? Would you enlighten? Would you open our minds and open our hearts? Would you, would you make it real? And for many of us, Lord, would you finally set us free from wrongful, muddle-headed, weird thinking we have about the Christian life. I pray this in your name, amen. Romans 6 and 7 has been building to this moment. Romans 6 and 7 has been like an hourglass that has been honing us in. We entered Romans 6, and ever since we entered into it, it's been moving moving us and moving us and moving us and moving us to this moment, to this passage right now. We're going to call it, specifically verse 24 and 25, we're going to call what's happening in 24 and 25, you ready? This is what we're going to call it, the Roman renovation. Like that? Okay, good. Here it is. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's God's goal for you and me in Romans 6 and 7? Where's God taking us? Every passage is going somewhere. Every passage has a destination. Every passage is designed to do something to us. It's certainly to give information to us and to make something clear to our minds, but it's meant to radically reach us and restructure us and change us and move us so that we actually experience the passage. So, what's God's goal here? Here it is. You ready? By making you and me feel deep in our bones the Roman renovation. To borrow the image from last week, Romans 6 and 7 has been leading us to this arena, the arena of verse 24 and 25, the arena of the Roman renovation. This is the heart of the gospel life. If you want to know what the gospel life is, if you want to know what the heart of normal ordinary, everyday Christianity is. Here it is. If you want to know, what do I do, and what about, how would you answer all those case studies we looked at in the beginning? What's the answer to them? The answer to them, the answer to you and me, the answer to anyone in any kind of situation in the Christian life is verse 24 and 25, the Roman renovation. We need the Roman renovation. We need it. And that's what this passage is doing. This is the normal Christian life. So if we don't see this as the normal Christian life, we are going to spin off into some really bizarre stuff. You and I, if we don't get that Romans 7 is the normal Christian life, you and I will live in Disney World. And you will constantly be at odds at what God is trying to do in your life. You will constantly be getting in the way of what God is trying to do in your life. Because what God is trying to do in your life and my life is lead us out of Disney World and into Romans 7. But you and I have a tendency to create weird theologies that keep us protected to try to live above Romans 7 or try to get out of the way of Romans 7. But no one wants to enter into the arena of Romans 7. Heck no. No. That's exactly where God's taking us. So here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. First, we've got to prove that Romans 7 is the Christian's experience. So I've got to do that first. Second, we're going to own the struggle in Romans 7 as our struggle. That Romans 7 is your struggle. Romans 7 is my struggle. And then we've got to own the solution. We've got to own the health. We've got to own the life. We've got to own the power. We've got to own the grace. We've got to own the holiness, the wholeheartedness the spiritual maturity of the Romans' renovation. So you're with me? Well, you are whether you want to or not, because here we go. Is the Apostle Paul talking about himself as an unbeliever or a believer? This is absolutely crucial. So first thing I need to say, I'm gonna have some side thoughts about before we get in here, you ready? Many thoughtful people disagree here. So even though those I disagree with are wrong. They are still nice people in a Romans 7 kind of way. Okay? Some people believe that a believer cannot experience what's talked about in Romans 7. I mean, look at verse 14. This can't be a Christian. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. That can't be a Christian. Look at verse 15 and 18. Paul is confessing that he sins. And he's confessing that he he sins regularly, even compulsively, which means involuntarily, almost like in bondage, like addiction kind of stuff. This can't be a Christian's experience. Well, many of the early church fathers agree, and so do many today. Romans 7 has to be an unbelieving person, all right? Now, full disclosure here, I believe that Paul is talking about a believing person. That Paul is talking about his own personal struggle with sin in the Christian life. In other words, I believe that what's happening here is not past Paul, but present Paul. Not unbelieving Paul, before the law, so to speak, at Mount Sinai, but present Paul as a normal, ordinary Christian like you and me. So here's some quick reasons. Quick. I just have eight, okay? Are you ready? First one, the verb tense has changed. Look at verses 7 through 13. The verse ten, verb tenses are past tense, right? This was Paul's personal breakdown, 7 through 13. This is when the law hit home to his heart for the first time. This is when Paul broke down and he realized, I'm not a good person. I'm sinful and I'm lost, The law hit home, because the law is designed to reveal you to you. Okay, but in verse 14 through 25, the verbs are present tense. Present Paul, not past Paul. Second reason, Paul's relationship to sin changes. In verse 7 through 13, sin's killing him. In verses 14 through 25, he's struggling with it. See the difference? In verses 7 through 13, there is no struggle with sin. Sin has a universal hold on him, a universal dominion on him. It has a, a power in which he's not only blind, he just doesn't even see that he's a bad person. But in 14 through 25, there is a great cosmic struggle with sin. Sin has been dethroned. And the wonder of actually struggling with sin needs to be reclaimed today. To actually struggle with sin is a sign of life, not defeat, not Christian B team, not you need to get victory over it, you need to live above it, but I'm ahead of myself. Third reason, verse 22 is epic life change. It's definitive life change. It's once and for all life change. I mean, look at it. Remember Romans six seventeen. It went like this. You were once a slave of sin, have become obedient from the heart. Remember that? That there's a moment when the gospel reaches the heart, and it reaches the heart in such a way that the heart is changed epically, definitively, once and for all. There's an obedience that comes from the heart, new life. Now listen to what's happening in verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Inner being is your heart of hearts. It's your inmost place. It's the the place where we actually rest and rely and rejoice. It's the center of your being. An unbelieving person does not rejoice or delight or rest in God, in his word, in the heart of hearts. That just doesn't happen. In fact, Paul says explicitly in Romans 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. So how can an unbelieving person have this kind of experience in their heart of hearts with God and his Word? It's kinda obvious, isn't it? See, I see I knew you guys would agree with me. Fourth reason, Paul's stunning self-understanding. Do you see that? His stunning awareness of his sin. Listen, religious people, religious people don't believe they're sinful. Religious people are absolutely committed to their goodness to admit that there's a flaw or an imperfection or that they are or we are messy and broken is so traumatic that we will set off all kinds of psychological defense mechanisms to keep us from that. And so we try harder, we do more, we do better. So a religious person doesn't think they're a sinner. But what about an irreligious person? An irreligious person could care less about sin. It's you uptight people that worry about sin, you church people, man. Who cares about sin? Paul is approaching sin in almost a third way. Not religious, not irreligious, but incredibly full of actually understanding who he is and the dynamics and the territory and the way that he actually tries to be his own savior in his life and how that works. Only a Christian can have that kind of growing self-understanding, right? Because an unbelieving religious person doesn't know they're sinful. And an unbelieving irreligious person could care less. Fifth reason, look at verse 25. All right, so if in the, in the unbelieving view that this is an unbeliever, verse 24 and 25 is conversion, okay? Everything's leading to conversion, So, now watch what happens right after conversion. Notice what happens. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. There's still a struggle after conversion for the Christian with sin. It's described right there. So even in that view, being a Christian didn't eliminate the struggle. That's interesting. I thought that was a good one. Sixth reason, the struggle with sin in Romans 7 sounds a lot like Galatians 5.17. Now, in Galatians 5.17, Paul says explicitly, this is the Christian life. This is the normal Christian experience. When you're a Christian, this is what you experience. You ready? For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That sounds awfully familiar to Romans 7. Does it not? Last reason, the overall context of Romans 6 through 8. Romans 1 through 5 is what? What is the gospel? Romans 6 through 8 is how to experience the gospel. The whole context of Romans 6 through 8 is life change. The whole context of Romans 6 through 8 is the gospel becoming real, the gospel changing, God working in us by the power of the gospel through his spirit. Actually, literally, grammatically, we know that there are two major questions in Romans 6 verse 1, verse 15. Romans 7 is part of the answering of the question of verse 16, which had to do with life change. So even contextually, the answer or the context is life change. Now, who else sees Romans 7? Like, who else believes what I'm saying up here? I said that, in the first service, people started raising their hands, and I was like, I didn't care about what you thought at that point. We're talking about, like, who else in church history believes this kind of stuff? I mean, I'm just, am I just making this stuff up? Am I the only one? Like, I never forget, I'm getting sidetracked, but I'm going for it anyway. I never forget when I started reading John Piper and I started coming to grips with the God-centeredness of God, and I, and I realized that, that John Piper believed it, and I believed it, and Nancy believed it, and then I heard and got a hold of that that was called classical Christianity or Orthodox, Protestant Orthodoxy, and I came home and I said to Nancy, I said, Honey what John Piper believes and what you and me believe is actually Christianity. So, who else believes this stuff? It's good to know. Well, Augustine does. Now, I need to be fair, full disclosure here, the earlier Augustine did not. The earlier Augustine thought this was an unbeliever, but the more mature, the more wise, the more developed later Augustine did. Uh, Luther, of course. Of course, Luther. And all the majority of the reformers did. I, I still have to do research on like which louse head reformer didn't believe this. I would, I'd like to figure that out. All right, in fact, this was the dominant view until the 1800s. 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, and all of a sudden the 1800s and the 1900s, things changed radically. In fact, Moose said the 19th and 20th century saw a bewildering welter of viewpoints. In the 1800s and the 1900s, Views, differing views of Romans 7 flooded the seminaries and flooded the churches. It was coming from the Pietists, the Wesleyans, the higher life movements, the fundamentalists, the liberals, the Pentecostals, the charismatics, the mainline denominations, church, parachurch ministries, and modernist scholars of the Bible. Moo helpfully says, well, in light of all this, how in the world do you deal with it? The differing views, he's very helpful. He says this, Interpreting Romans 7 is like fitting pieces of a puzzle together when one is not sure of the final outline. The best interpretation is the one that is able to fit the most pieces together in the most natural way. The best interpretation will be the one that's able to do justice with all the data and the text within the immediate and larger Pauline context. Romans 7 is Paul in the present, not Paul in the past. Romans 7 is the Christian struggle with sin. Own your struggle with sin. Own it. Resist Disney World. Own it. Enter the arena. All right. What kind of struggle with sin are we supposed to own? So Jeff, you're saying, this text is saying, own it. What am I supposed to own? What exactly am I owning here? what experience, struggle am I supposed to embrace and say it's mine and actually enter into that arena and not, not just be a spectator, all right? Here's the answer. You have conflicting desires in you. All at the same time. Right now, I wanna preach To the glory of God. I have a sense of love for you to get Jesus in this text. And at the same time, I do it for me. I care what you think about me. You have conflicting desires in you right now. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. It's well said. You ever had that? Why in the world did I do that? But notice that he wants to get to the root of his actions. He's not not hanging around with the rake at behavior. He wants to know why he's doing it. For I do not do what I want. And you might want to translate literally most want. For I do not do what I most want, but I do the very thing I hate or most hate. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want or most want, but the evil I do not want or most want is what I keep on doing. It's like we have multiple selves. It's like we have some kind of splitness in our personality. It's like we're schizophrenic. All of us have multi-personality disorder. Sometimes we want this. Sometimes we want that. Sometimes we want to be this. Sometimes we want to be that. What is wrong with us? Why do we have these conflicting desires in us? Because life change is a heart transformation, not a heart transplant. Please hear me, this is so, so important. When you become a Christian and you're changing and you're growing, it's not that God took out your old heart and then gave you a new heart. So now you have two hearts. Or you have one heart that's only a good heart so you shouldn't experience struggle because you have a new heart. Life change is God by his spirit restoring, renovating, changing, transforming, recreating, restructuring you, your one heart. It's not a transplant. It's a transformation. It's God taking you and making you. The one you knew. The one heart in you knew. I'm going to get really technical here, but hang with me. Life change is not dualism, it's not good heart versus bad heart. It's not that you have a good dog in you and a bad dog in you, and so you say, well, which one's the strongest, whichever one I feed. How many times did I hear that as a Christian? Oh, my word. And I taught it, so i got to, guess, be compassionate on me, too. Darn. Life change is the already and not yet. Not a dualism. You already have realities, and you have not yet realities yet to be. You have God healing you, God remaking you, God restoring you, God renovating you. God saving you in the present. Why do we have these conflicting desires in us? Because the sin condition in you has desires, and the renovating self, the restored, ongoing, healing self, has desires also. Conflict. All in one, one you. This is why Paul says it this way in verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it. What? It's no longer I who do it. What he's talking about is the true me, the real me, the true self. The self that's in union with Jesus. The self that's in union with Jesus and has all Jesus' objective legal realities like justification. But also his transforming, his infusing, his working in me realities like the Holy Spirit and new life. All of that is the new me. It's your identity in Christ that Paul's talking about here. Now, follow this. Now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's what's happening in the one you, our conflicting desires from remaining sin that got dethroned, its dominion conquered, but it remains. The head of the serpent was cut off, but the snake is still writhing. We have landed at Normandy, but we're still on our way to Berlin. own your struggle with sin. Own it. Stop fleeing it. Stop trying to live above it. Stop trying to have weird theologies that enable you to kind of somehow rise above this struggle as if that's more mature and as if that's reality. That's Disney World, folks. It is a sure path to spiritual insanity. J.I. Packer, as I've, I think I've said it now 3 sermons in a row, this could be a record. He said those theologies drove him insane. And he's everyone's favorite theologian. He wrote Knowing God, remember? And he said it was recapturing the view that we're talking about now through John Owen that literally saved his sanity. Okay? All right, so expect your struggle. Expect others to struggle with sin. Expect it. You should expect You should expect you to struggle with sin. You should expect your children to struggle with sin. You should expect your spouse to struggle with sin. You should expect this conflict in everyone in this church. You should expect it. We should stop trying to live above it with weird beliefs and trying to perform our way out of it, please our way out of it, perfect our way out of it, live dishonestly and pretend our way out of it, deny our way out of it. You are free to struggle right now. That's sanity. Imagine the culture in a church when people get own, embrace, you're free to struggle with your sin. We become a safe place. We become an unshockable place. We become a real place with real people, not fake people, not people that gotta have all these kind of spiritual props to make, spiritual makeup to make it look like they're doing better than they are. But people that are able to be comfortable in their own skin because they know that this is true of the Christian, that it's good news to be in a struggle with sin. It is the mark of being a Christian. What kind of solution to the struggle with sin are we supposed to own? So let's talk about the solution in our last minutes here. Are we supposed to own a solution that eliminates the struggle? I hope we've, we've dealt with that. No, do not embrace any theology, do not embrace any technique, do not embrace any scheme that teaches you or promises you to live above the struggle with sin. That's Disney World. That's spiritual immaturity, and that's spiritual insanity. The struggle with sin is the major marker of being a Christian. You and I are at war with sin, and that's incredible news. That's life as a Christian. Now, I need to do a little warning. In the officer training class, we talked about this a little bit, but I want to do that. Beware of trying to quantify the struggle with sin in you and other people. Beware of that. So you got the struggle with sin, and now you're going to try to measure it, control it, and quantify it, and create a discipleship program around it so you know what you're supposed to be doing, when you're supposed to be doing it, and how you can interpret everybody else's struggle with sin. Beware of that. Why? Because the struggle with sin is way too complex. And God's control over your sanctification is way beyond us. And he has you being spiritually mature in areas that I'm spiritually immature at. And he has me spiritually mature in areas that you're spiritually immature at. We have not a graph where you're going, here's progress and here's time. And you're eventually through time getting better and better, even though you have dips in it. As my church history professor says, I used to think that way, but now I have that line certainly. But then I have a line going backwards. And then a line making a free fall. And then I have a line that's doing really well. We are completely complex. Be very careful about quantifying the struggle with sin. Okay? Romans 7 tells us this is true. It does not give you a manual for it. All right. Paul's solution to the struggle with sin is the Roman renovation in continual doses. I can't revisit all those people, or we would be here for an hour. Remember Sue, Samantha, Sam, and Stuart? So let's revisit Sue. Sue's self-discipline, her willpower, her Bible study and prayer are no longer working. What's wrong with me? What's happening to me, she says. The Roman experience says this to her. It speaks this reality to her. It speaks, Paul says, I am sinful and lost. Wretched man that I am. That's what that means. I'm sinful and I'm lost. I'm messed up, I'm broken, I'm not who I thought I was. I'm a sinner, a sinner, and I'm lost. Sin dwelling within is what's wrong with Sue, not the lack of more effort. What's happening to Sue is sin within the sinful condition that still dwells there and will be there till she dies. That's what's wrong. Not some great cosmic secret or mystery that she'll never find out about. Or specialist over A, is gonna, she's gonna run to specialist A and specialist B and specialist C to try to figure out what the heck is wrong with me? What the heck is wrong with her? She's gonna run to all these specialists and all these purveyors of different philosophies and worldviews and religions to try to figure out what's wrong. Happening and what's missing. What's happening is that sin within is there. Sin within is there. That's what's happening. She's not uniquely broken. She doesn't have a defect that's unique to her and not to anybody else. She's broken. She's sinful, right? The Roman experience says not only I am sinful and lost, I am helpless. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Sue needs to know the answer is not me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Not me. Not me. I can't save myself. I can't change. Roman experience says, or the Roman renovation says, I see afresh who does save me, though. I see afresh a Savior. Specifically and particularly in this area of my life that I struggle with, in this area of my life the gospel has not gone to, this area of my life that I don't believe it, maybe intellectually, but not functionally, not experientially, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is one of the most powerful statements in all the Bible because it's in the present tense. Paul is saying, thanks be to God right now. Thanks be to God presently. Thanks be to God that he's with me. Thanks be to God that the grace of God is here. Thanks be to God that the good news and the wonders of what Jesus is, what he's done is here Presently impacting me, reaching me, helping me, strengthening me, healing me, putting me back together again, forgiving me. So, Sue needs to see afresh in the area she's struggling with. Here's what she needs to see Jesus died for this sin. I am delivered, I am forgiven. She needs to see that in this particular area she's struggling with, Jesus did not commit that sin for me. I am delivered. I am righteous. I'm accepted. I'm acceptable. I'm blameless. I actually have the perfection I spend my whole life trying to achieve. I already have it. I'm delivered present right now. She needs to see that I died with Jesus. When Jesus died, I died. And that means I died to the reign and the domination and the control and the power of this particular sin that's killing me. I am free to struggle with this sin. Not be dominated. She needs to see Jesus is with me always. Jesus loves me. Not an idea of me. Not some future changed me. Jesus loves me. When I mean, Jesus loves me. When I lie, Jesus loves me. When I am evil, Jesus loves me. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Romans 7 is the Christian struggle with sin. Own the struggle. And then own the Roman renovation. Time's up.